This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Hello and welcome to Heritage Matters, a programme brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust and sponsored by Ryman Healthcare. I'm Dougal Stevenson. In this week's programme, Gregor Campbell follows a trip through central Otago by distinguished lawyer Alf Hanlon. I follow the career of Jimmy the Needle. Judy Southworth flicks through an old compendium and Richard Stedman looks at a steam buggy. Alf Hanlon QC is probably Dunedin's most famous lawyer. He became a brilliant criminal barrister. But like all lawyers, he had to start out doing more mundane work, including routine tasks in central Otago in the late 19th century, in the time when the means of travel was quite rudimentary. This report from Gregor Campbell. Possibly the best-known lawyer ever to practice in Dunedin was Alf Hanlon, His memoirs, published in 1939, have many details of his cases and also of his travels through the countryside of central Otago in days when the railway got you most of the way, or at least some of the way. What a dreadful, though delightful place central Otago was when I first saw it. It was during the great blizzard of July and August 1895. After finishing a case at Invercargill, I had to go to Queenstown to take a case in the district court before District Judge Ward. For days it had been snowing and there was no telling how far one would get on the way to the Lakes District before communications were interrupted. The journey itself was rigorous enough, but the prospect of being marooned somewhere in the snowbound countryside was infinitely worse. I travelled by the northbound express from Invercargill to Gore and then took the train for Kingston. The bleak wind whistled round the carriages and found every crack and cranny in doors and windows, and it is doubtful whether it was colder outside or inside. The only way of heating the train in those days was by means of chemical foot warmers, which were generally too hot when the journey was begun and stone cold before it was half over. With only three or four in each carriage, it was a question of first in, first served, It was not long, however, before the fortunate possessor of such a comforter tossed it aside and tried to make the best of the cold leather upholstery of the seats, which seemed to force its frigidity through the stoutest tweeds. Long before Lumsden, or the elbow as it was then called, was reached, I was all but frozen with the cold. Still, we seemed to be making remarkably good progress, but fate was only playing with us. After leaving Lumsden, the train ran into a snowdrift in a deep cutting and came to a dead stop. I forget how long we were delayed there. Mental effort in such circumstances was as difficult as physical movement, but I remember well the gang of men which worked feverishly in feet of snow to clear the obstruction. Night overtook us with Kingston still miles away in the gloom. I defy anyone who has not experienced the misery of night travelling in winter on a branch line of the New Zealand railways in the 90s to conjure up an adequate conception of the ordeal. After darkness fell, it was impossible to read by the light of the smoky oil lamps, and the passengers had no option but to peer in deepening despair at the dismal scene around him. Sleep was impossible, and all one could do was hope. Finally, the train was left behind at the pier at Kingston, 
and the journey up Lake Wakatipu after a good hot meal provided on the steamer was an experience to be remembered. The mountains that rose direct from the lakeside were covered with snow to the water's edge. As far as the eye could see, there was not a jutting crag or promontory of rock free from the enveloping mantle of white. It was one of the most magnificent sights I have ever seen, and in my reaction to it, I achieved a momentary forgetfulness of the horrors of the day between Gore and Kingston. I have made the same trip many miles since, but I have never seen the landscape so completely obliterated as it was for weeks on end in the 1895 snows. Another journey taken into central Otago was an appearance in Naseby, and it was the return journey which Hanlon describes. My case concluded, I addressed myself to the problem of getting back home. There was no central Otago railway beyond Middlemarch as yet, and between Naseby and the railhead there stretched about 60 miles of coach riding under the most unfavourable conditions. When the coach, one of the old thorough brace type, arrived, I found that I was the only passenger so I climbed up on the box beside the celebrated Jimmy Sutherland, who was widely known as an expert and reliable driver. Everything went like clockwork for the first ten miles or so to Kyburn, and I began to feel a trifle ashamed about the apprehension I had felt earlier at the prospect of the return trip. But before long I found that I was quite entitled to any fears I had felt. My first premonition came shortly after leaving the Kyburn Hotel when I noticed a horseman with a large coil of rope dangling from his saddle following close behind us. "'What's that fellow following us for?' I asked the driver. "'Oh, he's just coming our way, that's all,' was Sutherland's evasive reply. For some reason I was quite unconvinced, but I held my peace until we came to the unbridged Tyree River, which, to my anxious eye, seemed to be running very high.' The coach drew up at what was ostensibly a ford, but which looked to me exactly the same as any other visible stretch of the rapidly flowing river. The horseman dismounted, and for a moment he and Sutherland held a quiet colloquy. Then the pair of them began piling large boulders on the floor of the coach. This curious operation concluded. The horseman mounted once more and rode downstream for about five or six chains to a bend in the river and, dismounting, stood at the water's edge with his coiled rope in his hand. "'What's the idea?' I asked a trifle fearfully. "Ah, "'Just in case of accident,' the driver replied nonchalantly as he set the horses in motion again. As we approached the muddy waters of the river, Sutherland unbuttoned his greatcoat and... When he carelessly suggested that I should do the same, I began to think that after all it might have been better if I would not been in such a hurry to get out of Naseby. The next minute, the coach was deep in the swirling river, and to my prentice eye seemed to be making desperate attempts to forsake its wheels and float across. The suspense was actually very short, and I breathed a sigh of relief when I felt the swift tug of the horses found their feet in the shallow river of the opposite bank. When we were safely over, I turned and surveyed the scene. That looks a bit risky to me, I suggested to Sutherland. Perhaps, he countered. But it's all right as long as I can see those rushes over there sticking up above the water. When they disappear, the ford isn't safe. Said quickly, it was convincing enough, but as we continued the journey to Middlemarch, I reflected gravely on what should happen some day if those rushes were shifted by some means.
The idea of my life and safety depending upon such slender safeguards was a disturbing one. But when I was safe back in Dunedin, I had my doubts about which was the more uncomfortable part of the trip, the ride in the coach from Naseby to Middlemarch or the slow grinding journey by train from the Strathtyre Township, which at that time was the terminus of the Central Otago Railway. I have the honour to be Gregor Campbell for Heritage Matters. In the Waitaki Valley's Georgetown Cemetery, roughly cut into a weathered stone, lying on the earth, an inscription reads, James Saunders Loder, Jimmy the Needle, drowned December 1862. A terse, scant epitaph, utterly devoid of sentiment. Three lines. The second line suggests that this marks the grave of a particular character, and the third, drowned December 1862, records another instance of a common occurrence in those times, except that a little research discovers an uncommon irony. Jimmy the Needle, how did he come by the name? A tailor, perhaps, a sailmaker, a character with a provocative, pricking tongue. No, Jimmy had disproportionately long legs. He was a ferryman. People had been crossing the Waitaki for centuries. The river had been a key fishery for Ngati Mamoi, Waitaha and Ngaitahu. The valley was a pathway to more hunting grounds in central Otago and Pornamu rivers on the west coast. The Waitaki was of great spiritual significance to Māori, its catchment including Auraki, Mount Cook. In the years before the bridge was built in 1876, a great influx of new white settlers and miners needed a ferryman to bring them across the braided Water of Tears, as it was known to Māori. Jimmy the Needle knew the river well. There are various accounts of Jimmy's life. According to one, he was sent to the Australian penal colonies in the early 1800s, but by 1840 was at the Waikawaiti Whaling Station, and then later in North Otago. I'll read from Dunedin's midweek newspaper from September the 1st, 1982. This is an extract from the book Protector of the Aborigines by Edward Shortland, contributed by Mary Parata, a descendant of Jimmy the Needle. When crossing the river from the southern bank of the Waitaki, the Maori usually launched their canoes from Tehuruhuru's village Puna o Maru, near where the Awamoko Creek flows into the Waitaki. Here lived James Saunders, known as Jimmy the Needle, because he was so tall and thin. Jimmy had been a whaler, was married to a Maori woman, and was the first white man to live in the district. He saw the need for a ferry across the Waitaki, and having been a sailor, knew how to handle a boat. Jimmy turned his knowledge into profitable use by rowing travellers across the river in a canoe, towing the horses behind. Travellers from the north lit signal fires when they wanted Jimmy to ferry them across. There was no set fare, and the ferryman charged what he thought fit, judging shrewdly what he thought his passengers could pay. One account says, One day Bishop Harper of Christchurch gave the signal, and Jimmy went forward and crossed him and his valet safely. The charge, however, rather surprised the bishop, so he asked Jimmy if he knew who he'd ferried over. Jimmy replied he did not. He was then informed, and Jimmy's reply was, Then I must charge you more. It's not every day I have a chance of ferrying a bishop. But Jimmy didn't have it all his own way, for in 1860 a government ferry was started on the site of the ferry reserve, five miles up the river from the present traffic bridge. 
This service took away the ferrying business from Jimmy, although he continued to cross the river occasionally. Because he knew every current and eddy of the river, he could ignore the saying, if you cross the Waitaki often enough, it will get you in the end. On the day Jimmy's second son was born, Dr. T.J.T. Williams called at the Saunders home. The doctor then said he'd like to see a patient at the northern side of the river. So Jimmy went with him to light a tussock fire to summon the government ferryman, James Earl, from the north bank. The boat came, took them to the north, and some hours later brought them back. He watched the doctor mount his horse, and Jimmy climbed up behind them as they had to climb shallow streams with occasional deep pools in them. The horse stumbled into one of those pools, and Jimmy fell off. Not knowing this, the doctor rode out onto the bank. Jimmy was a good swimmer, but this time he was hampered with a heavy coat and cape. The boatman, who'd suspected something was wrong, came back, but by this time the body of James Saunders had been taken out of the water. His body was put on a door and taken home. The story of Jimmy the Needle doesn't end there. There might be a legacy. It was said that Jimmy was rich for the times. He's been described as cute, sharp, and sly in his dealings, and having a soft spot for gold coins. And he kept good financial records. However, when he died, there was no money to be found. And passed down through the generations of Jimmy's descendants is a story of £10,000 in gold coin, hidden, buried perhaps, presumably in North Otago near Oamaru. I can't vouch for the veracity of the story, nor have I had contact with any of the several reputed treasure hunters. No one has owned up to finding it. You can bet that if the treasure exists, Jimmy the Needle would not have hidden it close to the River of Tears, knowing that the Waitaki's ever-changing course threatened to wash out his hoard and carry it down to scatter among the stones. James Saunders Loder, Jimmy the Needle, Drowned, 1862. The internet is full of wacky ideas, particularly suspect medical claims, as Judy Southworth found out when she looked at an old compendium. There's nothing new under the sun when it comes to strange ideas about how to cure your ailments. The Google search site was started in 1998. Before that, we relied on the advice of friends and family or visited a library. Some homes had a publication of household advice, often referred to as a compendium. These books contained information on dances, games, training and treating animals, diseases, anatomy, gardening, surgery and so on. Some of this advice is still applicable today, but some was unusual and even downright dangerous. From an early 19th century compendium comes the following. To improve eyelashes or restore them when lost by disease, cut off their forked gossamer points and anoint them with two parts ointment of nitric oxide and mercury to one part lard. Apply twice a day, washing after with warm milk and water. A never-failing cure for nervous headache is the simple act of walking backwards. Ten minutes is usually enough, however, it may require more than ten minutes if one is very nervous. If a person is struck by lightning, immediately strip the body and throw buckets full of cold water over it for 10 or 15 minutes. Foods were often adulterated, an example being coffee, which could contain roasted grains, roots, acorns, sawdust, burnt sugar and baked horses' and bullocks' livers. 
During the 1665 plague in London, schoolchildren were told to smoke cigarettes, which were thought to be a disinfectant. Similar thoughts may have been behind attempts to resuscitate drowned victims by dragging them from the Thames, stripping them, and using an enema to blow smoke into the person, often with bellows. A 1653 publication recommends peacock dung for convulsions and powdered earthworms for jaundice. Finally, Culpepper, in 1826, produced a work containing mainly information on how to preserve one's health and cure common ailments by the use of herbs. However, his examples here don't involve herbs. For the bleeding of the nose, bind the arms and legs as hard as you can with a piece of tape ribboning that perhaps may call back the blood. The liver of a hare, dried and beaten into powder, cures all the diseases of the liver of man. Well, there you have it. There's some strange stuff on Google, but as you can see, in earlier times, there was even stranger stuff doing the rounds. This is Judy Southworth for Heritage Matters. It's generally accepted that a locomobile purchase by Thomas Kempthorne in 1901 was the first privately owned motor car in Dunedin. The steam-powered vehicle has recently been restored by the Kempthorne Locomobile Trust. However, there was another steam-powered vehicle that roamed the streets of Dunedin 20 years earlier. This report from Richard Stedman. History records that in 1901 Thomas Kempthorne, the first Dunedin citizen to own a motor car, created a minor sensation when he was driven along Princess Street in his steam-operated two-cylinder locomobile with one of his company's engineers at the tiller. Kempthorne's enthusiasm had been sparked a year earlier when the New Zealand concessionaire for locomobile, George Henning of Auckland, bought a car south to Dunedin by train. Less well-known is an earlier vehicle designed by Robert Julian Scott and built by the Dunedin Engineering Company of Cutton Brothers. This vehicle was denied recognition as a motor car, as were all New Zealand-built steam vehicles, in contrast to imported steam-powered vehicles such as the locomobile. There is no doubt that Scott's design, built during 1880 and 1881, was the first independently-powered passenger road vehicle built in New Zealand, but it was defined under the McLean Motor Act of 1898 as being akin to the traction engine rather than the car. Robert Julian Scott was a cousin of the polar explorer Captain Robert Falcon Scott. Born in Plymouth in 1861, he received his technical education at King's College London and the Royal School of Mines, and after gaining railway experience in England, emigrated to New Zealand in 1880 to work for the New Zealand Government Railways, first as a draftsman and then as an engineer, and eventually became acting locomotive superintendent. He was later appointed part-time lecturer in engineering at Canterbury College in 1888 and became professor in the School of Engineering in 1894. In 1880, he designed a 35-horsepower steam buggy to carry 10 passengers, which was no traction engine. It was likely that Scott's inspiration was in part due to the development of steam-powered road vehicles and carriages in his homeland. His vehicle was built and tested in 1881 by Cutton Brothers, a Dunedin engineering company based in Castle Street. Speaking to a gathering of early motorists in Christchurch during 1924, Professor Scott explained that he had come to the conclusion that farmers needed some mobile form of power, so he devised a steam carriage with the capacity for 10 people but also able to carry goods and to be used for driving farm machinery. 
His vehicle was capable of speeds of between 35 to 40 miles per hour, up to 60 kilometres an hour. His machine was the first in New Zealand to have a chassis, and it was powered by a coke-fired steam engine which developed 35 horsepower and positioned over the rear driving wheels. The vehicle's artillery-style wheels were manufactured using the design drawings of a field gun carriage, the first of their type manufactured in New Zealand. It was intended to use rubber tyres, but no English firm had appliances for vulcanising tyres of the dimensions required, and the wheels were therefore fitted with heavy iron tyres. Subsequently, they gave endless trouble as the iron tyres became hot and damaged by the bumping that they received running at high speed over the potholed gravel roads in Dunedin. The vibrations also crystallised the low-grade wrought iron of which the chassis and the undergear was constructed. The carriage consisted of a wagonette capable of carrying 10 passengers with the four wheels arranged so that the weight on each wheel remained equal on uneven surfaces. The vehicle was steered by a horizontally mounted steering wheel connected to the front wheels while the rear wheels were attached to the driving gear linked to the rear mounted steam engine. Despite the absence of rubber tyres, the car was reported to be fairly comfortable for passengers. The body was carried on the chassis by three elliptical springs bedded on rubber blocks, while the axles were supported on spiral springs and the range of movement was controlled by shock-absorbing rubber blocks inserted below and on top of the axle gearings. This permitted the direct gearing of the engine to the driving axle. There were two forward gears and a reverse. The engine was controlled from the driver's seat using a lever to engage the gears. Included was a foot brake which actuated a band brake on the driving axle. Considerable effort was required to turn the vehicle. Either of the driving wheels could be disengaged from the driving axle by a clutch so that a winding drum holding 100 yards of wire rope could be used to haul the car through riverbeds. Coke used to fire the steam engine was carried in bunkers and firing only required about every 45 minutes and a portion of the exhaust steam was condensed into the water tank which was fitted with a water lifter for picking up supplies from ditches and water races. The Otago Daily Times reported that the invention should prove one of great value in the country districts as a vast improvement on the slow and cumbersome traction engine then in use. The Minister of Public Works, Richard Oliver, was invited to witness a test run of the vehicle along Castle Street and on its return to Cutton's Yard it was turned too sharply, carried away the iron gate and charged into the yard. The Minister took refuge behind a steam hammer and as it began to topple he put up his umbrella. Injudicious use of the reverse gear sent the vehicle rushing backwards and it demolished the Cutton's office building, finally coming to rest among other machinery. On the 13th of April 1882, the vehicle was driven along Castle Street and up the road to the Northern Cemetery. It was found to work most satisfactorily in every respect. However, while it was being turned around for the return journey, one of the wheels slipped into a hole on the side of the road, causing considerable delay. Later that month, Scott decided to drive the vehicle to Christchurch to prove its capabilities and enter an exhibition. But on descending the Mount Cargill Road toward Waitati, it ran away out of control and rolled and smashed its way to the bottom of the hill and then collapsed. It was shipped to Christchurch by train, where it won a medal. Robert Scott could not afford the ongoing costs of repairs to his vehicle and so abandoned the project, selling off parts of the car to be utilised in other projects. On September the 21st, 1881, he became draftsman in the New Zealand Railways Administration. 
He designed the first insulated wagon for frozen meat and prepared the drawings and specifications for the first locomotive built at Addington, the first made by New Zealand government railways. In 1887, he became acting locomotive superintendent and in 1889 was appointed manager of the Dunedin Railway Workshops, but in November resigned to take charge of the engineering department at Canterbury College, where he remained as head until his retirement in 1923. This is Richard Steadman for Heritage Matters. This program, which will be repeated on Sunday at 7pm, is kindly sponsored by Ryman Healthcare and brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust. Ryman Healthcare prides itself on offering some of the most resident-friendly terms in New Zealand. Ryman Healthcare's Francis Hodgkins and Yvette Williams Retirement Villages in Dunedin offer the very best of retirement living and care. For more information and to discuss your retirement living options, please phone Kate on 455-7936. Ryman Healthcare, supporting Southern Heritage Trust and the Heritage Matters Programme. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.